1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? What'd you tell me? Take it to the zoo. Oh, come on, come on!
dying even in the guy's league. Wish me luck. I'm gonna need it. Good luck. Don't leave town. and welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award and Release Order and see why the film's so highly regarded. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my co-host Blaine Dowler. How are you today, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you? Great, thank you. And evidently he had such a great time, he wanted to come back, or we've been keeping him prisoner, you choose. But we're once again joined by Is It Jaws's Paul Spataro. How are you today, Paul? I'm good, thanks. I've been sitting at my computer for a month waiting for this. <laughs> Your dedication is appreciated. This time, we're looking at the 49th Annual Academy Awards, covering films released in 1976, and the Best Picture winner of that year, Rocky, directed by John G. Alvidson. Rocky premiered on December 3, 1976, and features Sylvester Stallone as Rocky, Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed, Talia Shire as Adrian Panino, Burgess Meredith as Mickey Goldmill, and Burt Young as Polly Panino. The film's screenplay was written by Sylvester Stallone. I will kick us off by going through the synopsis from Wikipedia. In 1975, the heavyweight boxing world champion Apollo Creed announces plans to hold a title bout in Philadelphia during the upcoming United States Bicentennial. However, he's informed five weeks from the fight date that his scheduled opponent, Mac Lee Green, is unable to compete due to an injured hand. With all other potential replacements booked up or otherwise unavailable, Creed decides to spice things up by giving a local contender a chance to challenge him. Creed selects Rocky Balboa, an Italian-American journeyman Southpaw boxer who fights primarily in small gyms and works as a collector for a loan shark. Rocky meets with promoter George Jurgens, assuming that Creed is seeking local sparring partners. Reluctant at first, Rocky eventually agrees to the fight, which will pay him $150,000. Rocky undergoes several weeks of unorthodox training, such as using sides of beef as punching bags. Rocky is later approached by Mickey Goldmill, a former bantamweight fighter who turned trainer and whose gym Rocky frequents about further training. Rocky is not willing initially, as Mickey has not shown much interest in helping him before and sees him as a wasted talent, but eventually Rocky accepts the offer. Rocky begins to build a romantic relationship with Adrian Panino, who is working part-time at the J&M Tropical Fish Pet Shop. Adrian's brother and Rocky's best friend, Polly, 
helps Rocky get a date with his sister, and offers to work as a cornerman with him for the fight. Polly becomes jealous of Rocky's success, but Rocky placates him by agreeing to advertise the meatpacking business, where Polly works as part of the upcoming fight. The night before the fight, a sleepless Rocky visits the Philadelphia Spectrum and begins to lose confidence. He confesses to Adrian that he does not believe he can win, but strives to go the distance against Creed, which no other fighter has done, to prove himself to everyone. On New Year's Day, the fight is held with Creed making a dramatic entrance dressed as George Washington and then Uncle Sam. Taking advantage of his overconfidence, Rocky knocks him down in the first round, the first time Creed has ever been knocked down. Humbled and worried, Creed takes Rocky more seriously for the rest of the fight, though his ego never fully fades. The fight goes on for the full 15 rounds, with both combatants sustaining various injuries. Rocky, with hits to the head and swollen eyes, requires his right eyelid to be cut to restore his vision. Apollo, with internal bleeding and a broken rib, struggles to breathe. As the fight concludes, Creed's superior skill is countered by Rocky's apparently unlimited ability to absorb punches and his dogged refusal to go down. As the final bell sounds with both fighters embracing each other, they promise each other there will be no rematch. Aside, they lied. After the fight, the sportcasters and the audience go wild. Jurgens announces over the loudspeaker that the fight was the greatest exhibition of guts and stamina in the history of the ring, and Rocky calls out repeatedly for Adrian, who runs down and comes into the ring. As Jurgens declares Creed the winner by virtue of a split decision, Rocky and Adrian embra embrace and profess their love for each other, not caring about the outcome of the fight. So, let's throw it open by just talking about, let's start with Sylvester Stallone, because this was the film that obviously put Stallone on the map. Yeah, not his first job, but the one where people said, oh, hey, there's a name to watch. Stallone is, is a strange thing for me, because I think he is far more intelligent than perception is for him. And I think he's a better actor than perception is for him. I think people confuse the man with the role frequently. He's made some bad choices in his career as far as certain movies he's been in and, and certain things he's done. But I think he is a very smart writer. I think he is a decent quality director. Uh, and I think he's a fairly good actor. But again, like I said, I, I think people confuse the, the role with the actor himself. And they think of him as kind of a palooka. I agree, but you can't be an idiot and win, or excuse me, and write a best, act, a best uh, picture winning film. Oh, I agree. I don't think he is an idiot at all. I think he's a good actor. I think he's a very smart man. Uh, but I think, like I said, I think perception and reality separate on him. I, I, I agree, and I think as times changed during the 80s and uh, the nature of the blockbuster changed film. I think audience expectations changed and I think his characters were dumbed down or diminished as a result of that. Rocky, Rocky Balboa is a very complex character. An unnoticed, unappreciated boxer who breaks thumbs for a lone shark, but is the sweetest guy, right? The the synopsis doesn't talk about the little interchange between him and the girl, Angela, you know, the neighborhood girl. Mm -hmm. But that's, 
you know, that interplays one of my favorite scenes of the film. The way you see how he is with his turtles. Rocky's the embodiment of, you know, the, the guy with the heart of gold. And I, I think as the series goes on, and I don't want to take us too far into the other films, the spectacle kind of overshines uh, the character. But Stallone gives us a really complex performance here. I agree. I... Yeah, I think this is a case of almost someone who peaked early because the the films that it became known for really were this and then First Blood, right? The first Rambo film. And both of those series degenerated, which didn't help his reputation. He became a draw for his muscles more than his mind. So the roles he was being offered after that were not they were not based on scripts that would be intellectually challenging for the audience. Right? This one has layers. This has things you could think about and chew on after the fact. But is that true of Cliffhanger? Is that true of Demolition Man? I mean, he became known as the action guy, and the action genre is not well known for making you walk away and challenge your life choices. Well, that's, that's what I, I kind of said earlier, where I think he made some bad choices in his career. Uh, and and not necessarily bad choice because you know you I, I we covered Cliffhanger on Is It Yours I I enjoyed that movie very much we've covered uh, through Rocky Four on Is It Yours so far uh, and just by the way as a plug for that uh, we did this particular movie on uh, Is It Yours number seventeen so I'm I'm going to probably pull back and not comment quite as much to try not to repeat things I've already said but I I think he became a little bit a victim of giving the audience what he thought they wanted in, instead of trying to stretch himself. And then I, I remember, I guess it was in the late 80s, early 90s, where they said, oh, he's going to you know, show everybody in, in this new movie, Copland, what he could do. And, and he did try to, to stretch himself a little bit. That movie you know, was kind of a failure. I, I, I think that came back to bite him a little bit because it's like, okay, when I give the audience what they want, people complain that I'm not stretching myself as an actor or, or doing things. And then when I try to take a part where, you know, it's a little bit more complex with a layered character, people say, you know, that movie just wasn't that good. I, I think a lot of actors choose to kind of jump back and forth, and it's probably a mistake he made by not doing that. A lot of times actors will play a part to get the studio to bankroll the part that they want to do. Uh, so, you know, they'll they'll do the blockbuster if you'll pay, you know, if you'll produce this other movie that I want to do, this much smaller scale one that's going to stretch me as an actor. And I think Stallone probably would have been well served to do that. I think instead what he did was he said, well, if you want me to do this movie, then let me direct it. You know, that kind of thing. So, I, I, you know, he traded off and I think it hurt his, it certainly didn't hurt his career to speak of, but I think it hurt his legacy. Yeah, I was actually working in the movie theater when Copland came out. So that was about the mid-90s. I worked in that theater from uh, 95 to 97. And, or 98, I guess. No, September 94 to September 97. And part of the issue, like, when we finally got it, it was in one of the, the smaller theaters. And I think one of the reasons it underperformed was there was, I remember, don't remember the specifics. Not It wasn't quite like True Lies. But every every dollar you spend in the box office is divided between the exhibitor, so the actual movie theater itself, the distributor, the production company, and whatever portions of the box office ticket are going back to the director, the actors, the right, and so forth. So it's a, a piece of that pie. And Copland wasn't as egregious as True Lies, but it was asking 
exhibitors to take a smaller piece of that pie than they otherwise would. So not all distributors picked up the movie because of that are not all exhib exhibitors. So it didn't get the exposure to really change his reputation. Right? We had it in one of our smaller theaters. It sold out, but again, it was in the smaller theater where every other stolen movie we had, even Judge Dredd, which was pretty abysmal, opened in the biggest one. So, but again, yeah, it wasn't like true lies where at that time we would average keeping between 35 to 50% of the box office dollar for every dollar spent for a movie in a new release. And True Lies never came to our theater or most theaters. That's why it didn't perform as well in the box office because they were asking exhibitors to just keep 5%, which was the most egregious one until the Star Wars prequels where they were asking for a, a large share. And for Canadian retailers, they wanted the equivalent average share in US dollars. So yeah, by the time we hit the Star Wars sequels, if you did not see it in 3D, the Canadian exhibitor lost money on your ticket because they had to send more than 100% of the box office ticket back to Fox in the US. Anyway, that's getting a little off track, but yeah. I think this is one that proved that Stallone is capable of more than his subsequent jobs asked him to do, for the most part. Agreed. I, I, I definitely see that as... Again, there's career choices that you make, and certainly he never hurt his career financially. I think he's done very, very well. But again, you know, I don't think he's ever going to go down in the annals as an all-time great actor. I don't know if he would have if he had tried to stretch himself, but I do think he was a fine actor and certainly could have stretched himself more than he did. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as you're saying, he's he's got the business side of show business down. And I know he tried the comedies with Oscar and Stop Her, My Mom Will Shoot. Mixed success, we'll say. There's a definite mixed reaction from the audiences. He's gotten really good notices for returning to the Rocky role in the past, I'll say, five or six years. And I'm hearing, I, I haven't started watching it yet, I'm, he I'm hearing really good things about his new uh, series, Tulsa King. So maybe, maybe it's not too late for him to kind of redeem the critical reception of his acting career. But let Let's move on to Talia Shire. I think throughout the franchise, the character of Adrian is kind of remembered as being kind of the warrior or the nag. But if you watch the films, that's not true, and that's that's especially not true here. And I think I think she does a great job of portraying this very shy, withdrawn woman, and how Rocky kind of pulls that, or pulls the real Adrian, if you will, out of that. Yeah, uh, before I comment on that, not to intentionally make you feel old, but when he returned to Rocky with Rocky Balboa, that wasn't five or six years ago, that was 17 years ago. That was 2006. Right. Well, I was I was thinking more of the Creed films, but yeah, no, you're right. <laughs> Yeah, Creed is 2015 and Creed 2 is 2018, so... It's still, time passes very quickly. But no, yeah, I would agree that Talia Shar plays this really well. She's one of the, the people here that was already established in, in movies, too, because she's uh, she was part of our conversations for the Godfather films. Talia Shire, you know, she doesn't have a stellar career. If you look, you know, there's, there's, I, I guess she hasn't felt the need to work as consistently as some actors and actresses do. But she, you know... I, she certainly gives a good performance in this movie. She she plays the the shy 
let me show you how I feel with my facial expressions part very well. Because she's not called on to do a lot of dialogue. So it's, it's, more, it's more her physical acting than anything else in this particular movie. And then in the later movies, and I think that's where you get that, you know, what Trey was talking about with the reputation as the warrior. And I don't mean warrior as in somebody who goes to, to war. I mean warrior as somebody who worries a lot. But, you know, speaking purely of this movie, I, I think, you know, she, she's not asked to stretch that much. And I think she makes the, the absolute most out of this part with her physical acting. The, the, you know, when she'd pull back and, and, you know, make herself small in certain scenes because she's pulling away from what's going on. Or when she finally has to stand up to Paulie and, and you know, let him know what she's really thinking. So, that, you know, there, there, there are a couple of little meaty moments in it, but I don't think, you know, I don't think she's... I, again, I, I think I'm saying it badly, but I think she made the most out of what she could with this, with this part. I don't think the part called for as much as she actually gave. Uh, so I think she expanded beyond the role. Oh yeah, she she did add a lot to what was on the page. This that one failing of the script is that she is almost like the trophy, but she's not. It's not like a movie like Weekend at Bernie's where you don't understand why the woman is with the male with their history together. Like yeah, you have an attractive woman, but not so attractive that they can't hide it. So you could see that yeah, her confidence has been crushed. There is depth to her, but. One of the aspects of her character is that that lack of confidence has made her incredibly quiet. So she has to deliver physically, and she does. Yeah, she brings a lot out in this. But again, it's mostly Rocky's story. Aside from a couple of scenes that focus on Apollo Creed, Rocky is in every scene. So you don't get scenes of Adrian without Rocky. Right? We don't get scenes of Polly without Rocky. Either Rocky or Apollo Creed is in every single scene we see. And the, I think there's only two scenes with Apollo where there's that first scene where he decides to give the local champ a shot. And I think there's a, it might be a second scene not long after that, where he picks Rocky based on the Italian stallion nickname. And then there's a third one later where his brother is watching the training videos going, ah, you should come take a look at the guy you're going to be fighting because he's taking it seriously. Like, and that's something that came out a lot that Apollo was considering this as a pure show, right? He was thinking this, this boxing match is going to be as serious as, you know, playing basketball with the Harlem Globetrotters. He, he was not going to consider this a match, but Rocky was. Even though Rocky didn't think he could win, but he said, no, I want to go the distance. And yeah, that, that difference in perspective may or may not have been what gave Rocky the early edge enough to knock Creed down and get him shaken. But yeah, even, I think it was like round three, when Creed's brother is there saying, hey, he thinks this is a real fight. He doesn't know it's a show. You've got to take him seriously. That's that's a line I've quoted so many times over the year. He don't know it's a damn show. He thinks it's a damn fight. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, uh, I, I, you know, that's that, that character that you mentioned is Duke. And he, he was in a number of them. And I feel like he's a guy who has just this aura of charisma about him. Because he's a very small part, really. But he's very memorable. And and not in a you know certainly not in a bad way at all in in a, in a very positive way, uh, so you know he I believe he passed on not that long ago but he's uh, he's one of my favorites in this series. This yeah this I I think you know I guess we're moving on to Apollo Creed a little bit. Carl Weathers is definitely not called upon to do a tremendous amount of acting in this. He's he's called upon to be Muhammad Ali is what he, what his part is, 
and he pulls it off extremely well. But you know, look, looking back at Carl Weathers' career, uh, you know, as we did with Sylvester Stallone's, you know, he's been he's had a couple of memorable parts. Uh, you know, he was in Predator that that was memorable. He actually had kind of a fun part in uh, Arrested Development. Uh, but when they tried to give him, you know, his own starring vehicle, uh, Action Jackson, he came up way short, as far as I was concerned. And that one came short, you know, not only the acting but the script itself. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know that a great actor could have made that movie uh, good anyway. But just the same, I don't think Carl Weathers has that same level of performance or or performance ability that some of the others did. But I think he fit the character that they gave him. He was not allowed. He was not asked to really stretch very much, and I think he he fit physically what he needed to, and and was able to you know pull off the role as you know exactly as needed. Yeah, I I have a fondness for Action Jackson, but you're 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 right when you're upstaged by um vanity in the film that you're headlining something's wrong. But no, I I, I agree. I it would be very easy to make the role of Apollo unlikable, or excuse me, the character of Apollo unlikable, because he is pretty much pure ego until he, you know, like you said, Blaine, around the third round of the fight. But Carl Weathers uh, keeps him charming. He's not some, you're rooting for Rocky because Rocky's such a sweet guy. You're not rooting for Rocky because you dislike Apollo Creed so much. Yeah, you could very easily shift the perspective of this and make Apollo Creed the hero. Right? We are seeing Rocky as the hero because we are so close to him and so intimate and because he is likable. But you could tell a story of Apollo starting his career and reaching this point and see him as the hero. It's like you said, they didn't make him unlikable. He's, he's the adversary or the antagonist that doesn't make him the villain. You you could even show him from the perspective, just with this movie, not of his career coming up, from the perspective of the story we heard, saw in this movie about how he, you you know, you'd, you have to change the dialogue a little bit and expand it, but you could show how he decided to champion this, you know, down and out guy who who really didn't have a career and give him a shot. You know, you, you could make him the hero of the movie by, by showing him as being benevolent in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wouldn't take much, so, which is, again... A very atypical choice for a script is to have your opponent or your adversary that's still maybe not as likable, but still likable in a lot of ways. I mean, he's, to compare the two, Apollo Creed is not the one working as a mob enforcer. He's not out there breaking thumbs on people because they couldn't pay a debt. And and when he comes out as George Washington, I mean, it's got to bring a smile to your face, throwing silver dollars out to the uh, audience. Okay. That, yeah, I don't know if it had the same impact to this Canadian as it would to an American audience, but this was primarily made for American audiences, so. Well, I, and I don't, I don't even mean it from the patriotic point of view. I just mean it from the spectacle point of view. The, the spectacle was good, but honestly, I didn't know what throwing the dollars meant, because that's not a well-known part of the history here. Okay. What about Burt Young as Polly? I, I definitely think this is what he's most known for. I know he's been in a few other films and projects, but I think if anyone knows Burt Young, it's it's from this film. Yeah, IMDb says he's he's got 167 acting credits, but they only have three known for instead of the usual four. And it's Rocky, Chinatown, and Win Win. And I don't think I've even heard of Win Win. That was from 2011. Wow. I the, the only I mean I've I've seen Chinatown, but I don't remember him in it. The only other film that 
other than the the Rocky series, right? The only other film I remember him in is uh, he was in uh, the Rodney Dangerfield vehicle uh, Back to School. Oh, he was. I, I believe he had a big part in the Pope of Greenwich Village, if I remember correctly. He was the Bedbug Eddie or something like that is his character's name, and he's he's basically the mob guy that that Eric Roberts and Mickey Rourke are kind of up against in that movie. Okay. And and you know very very good part uh, in in what was a ultimately a very underrated movie. Yeah, he he fits the character very very well. I I don't know why, but the scene that sticks out in my mind is is you know early on when he's first introduced and he's in the bathroom trying to comb what's left of his hair in in a, the shards of a mirror, and and just saying if I catch the guy who broke this mirror, <laughs> I don't I don't know why, but that scene stood out to me as just kind of amusing and kind of gives you his character a little bit gives you a little you know quick insight to him and that's something i guess that's worth mentioning too when we talk about sylvester stallone and his writing ability and such he manages to give us quick vignettes on a lot of these characters and yet we know who you know who they are and they don't feel two-dimensional and that's that's something that i think takes a skillful screenplay yeah i would agree and just to point out I've got his IMDb open, and yes, he was Bedbug Eddie in the Pope of Greenwich Village. He also appeared in episodes of Miami Vice, The Equalizer, Outer Limits, Tales from the Crypt, even an episode of Columbo, and he was also in The Adventures of Pluto Nash, but we'll not hold that against him. <laughs> but no, you're right, Paul, because, and not that it doesn't take talent to adapt a screenplay, but this wasn't Stallone adapting a book. This was Stallone writing something from a whole cloth. And I think a lot of a lot of the characters, especially in this first film, are a lot more complex than than people remember. I think people remember the mad parody versions of the characters, if you will, instead of the actual characters. But w- with Polly, he's maybe one step up from Rocky, you know, he's got a steady job at the meatpacking plant. He he's very domineering when it comes to Adrian as and is probably part of the reason for her being withdrawn. But at the same time, he's got the ability to read people well enough to matchmake for Adrian and Rocky. Yeah. If anything in the film rubs me the wrong way, it's how little input Adrian seemed to have in being set up on that first date. You see, ultimately, it was the right choice. She was interested, but it was still something that was forced upon her, right down to throwing the turkey out of the window. It was, but I kind of always felt like Paulie knew that they were a good combination, and he knew she was never going to come out of her shell on her own. I, I, I feel like it wasn't, you know, like, you know, like 18th century matchmaking. You know, I I, I think it was, it was a... a I think I I want to give Paulie some credit for for having the insight into his sister's personality and knowing that she had to to kind of be forced out of her shell and that once she did she would flourish. So I'm 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 giving it credit where you're feeling uncomfortable with it and I I can't argue with you that you're wrong, but I I just choose to view it in a different way. Fair enough. And that's the thing it, it seeing how it the relationship ends up. They clearly are good fits for each other they do work well they care about each other deeply but it just would have been nice if she had a little more input in how it happened in the first place and then i think that brings us to kind of the last main character burgess meredith as mickey and i mean 
extremely long and storied career, but this and the Penguin from the 66 Batman TV show are probably the roles that Burgess Meredith are most known for. I would also throw in his Twilight Zone spots, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Time enough at last. <laughs> Burgess Meredith is so good in this. He he really... I feel like he's the tour de force performance in this movie. We give credit to, to everybody else for, for what they stepped up, but I kind of feel like he he's somebody who you, by all rights, should not like, and yet you love him. And and he just brings that to the character, and and this this so the, the scene when he is trying to get Rocky to let him manage him, and then when he's walking away, you know, and you could play the sad man, Incredible Hulk mu- uh, music behind him, it it just you you just feel so so much there, and I just think you know I I just think it's just an absolutely great performance. Yeah, you and you needed him to really sell that part. Or you wouldn't believe that the five weeks worth of training would have gotten Rocky to the point where he could go the distance. A lot of that was that was what was in him. That was his goal. But you needed to be trained enough to not get pounded. Well, and the the turn, right? Be- because in the beginning, before Rocky got the offer from Apollo, Mickey was as against Rocky as anybody else, right? You're a bum. Your stuff's getting thrown out of my gym. I'm tired of you being here stinking up the place. And then when he realizes that through Rocky, he may be able to better connect with the career he once had and maybe wanted to have, he humbles himself to go back to Rocky. And it's a, you're right, Paul. It's a great scene. And, and I'm, I'm even giving him credit retroactively. You know, when he first kicks Rocky out of the gym, you know, you're thinking, oh, this this guy's just, you know, a hard ass and he's he's screwing over this character that we like so much. And, you know, then as the movie goes on and you see everything, I get the feeling, you know, I start to believe he saw Rocky's potential and saw Rocky squandering that potential, which he kind of says. But but you know, now I believe it. That that he was, you know, this was the tough love kick in the ass. It was not, I'm just gonna be a jerk to you. Yeah, and I think that comes out in that same scene you mentioned where he comes to be the, the or asked to be the trainer and reveals that, yeah, the main issue he has with Rocky is he's working for the mom. And that's a legitimate issue to have with someone. And I could see him not wanting someone like that in the space, but tolerating him for as long as he did because of the potential he saw in him. Because, you know, hopefully this $150,000 payoff is enough to turn things around and tipping my hand a little bit with the history of the film. I saw this, I watched it on TBS, on one of the marathons of all five Rocky movies before Rocky Balboa had come out, when there were, were only five, and was pleasantly surprised. I had it on the background. There, There's a lot of boxing movies out there, and many of which by directors I really enjoy. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is one of my favorites, and he's got two boxing movies. He's done Killer's Kiss and Day of the Fight. Robert Wise directed the setup. I have a strong distaste for boxing as a sport. I don't get the entertainment value in two guys beating the crap out of each other to see who does a better job of beating the crap out of the other guy. So I respect that there's athleticism and skill. And I understand it used to be illegal and they only legalized it to try and save lives because that meant they could regulate it. Because boxing was happening one way or the other and just a lot more people were dying. So it's like when they reversed prohibition, it was, yeah, it's better off to, to regulate than to prohibit because it's happening anyway. But with all these box movies, they're so far 
there is a grand total of one boxy movie I like, and this is it. I started watching it as the marathon, enjoyed the first one, only about 20 minutes into Rocky II before I switched channels and found something that was more engaging for me. So to me, that just the fact that this is the one exception, and that's something that not even Cooper could pull off for me, is saying quite a bit about this one film. Oh, my, my son's now 13. He was 12 last year, obviously. Sorry for being redundant. <laughs> but a friend of his whose parents are much more restrictive than I am and what they let their son watch had asked Clark if he had ever seen Rocky. And he came home and asked me, what is this Rocky movie? And I, I, I put it on. We watched it together. And he was transfixed. And over the span of two weeks, we watched Rocky's one through five because he got hooked. Then life got in the way, so we haven't picked back up with Rocky Balboa and finished. But he still mentions to me, you know, Someday we need to sit down and watch Rocky Balboa. I need to see the Creed films. But this film was enough to get him invested to where he wanted to see the whole series. I think that speaks to the power and the quality of this film. You know, there, there, there is no Bull Durham franchise, right? There's, you know, there, there is no natural franchise. There, there's not really a successful sports franchise in terms of films. This is this is really it. And I, I think that's all due to the foundation that's laid here. Uh, does the Mighty Ducks count? I think they got up to three, didn't they? Yeah, I guess so. And then there's the Big Green, which is Disney's soccer movie, which is really like, you know, you take the Mighty Ducks script and search and replace. To the point when we premiered that in the theater I worked at, the opening matinee, there was a kid who was probably four or five in the audience screaming, I've seen this already, because it was really the Mighty Ducks with Search and Replace. You know, I was thinking Major League, but I, I don't count that as a successful franchise just because of how it quickly goes over a, a cliff. Uh, but yeah, I guess not. I guess Mighty Ducks would, would count in that same vein. Yeah, but again, that's very, very different. That's uh, giving kids more of what they like. And those of us who have young kids... I mean, my girl's 16 months old, but you still know exactly what she likes because she's a huge music fan. Sometimes we'll, you know, when we're getting ready in the morning after breakfast, sometimes she'll get, a, you know, 15, 20 minutes of screen time while mom and dad are running around packing diaper bags to bring her to daycare and whatnot. And I think since she was 12 months old, she would ask for Katy Perry's Roar by name. She would say Roar and point to it <laughs> on the screen. Now it's mostly Elmo, but yeah. There's things that she will specifically ask for that we know she likes. Put the iPad in front of her and she will rewatch the same video three or four times. I have to tell you, Blaine, I totally understand your distaste with boxing. But I was a fan of the sport at one time. Uh, it's The sport has kind of faded and so is my interest in it. I, I do occasionally watch some classic fights from years and years ago. I have seen boxing movies that I'm a fan of. Beyond the Rocky series, Raging Bull, I think, is an excellent movie. Cinderella Man, I think, is an excellent movie. If we want to go back to, to you know, old classics, I really enjoyed Gentleman Jim with uh, Errol Flynn. I'm trying to remember the um, Kirk Douglas movie, I believe it's called The Fighter. There's also Someone Up There Likes Me, uh, which is Paul Newman. So, you know, there are definitely boxing movies that I am a fan of, and I was at one time a fan of the sport. This movie in particular, and to be quite honest, the Rocky series, 
does not show what boxing is really like. It, it shows these people getting hurt. It shows, you know, it, it these, these movies are, as far as the boxing matches themselves, are very cartoony in comparison to what real boxing is. That's something I'm willing to absolutely, absolutely forego. I, I don't necessarily need the realism. You, you see that more in Raging Bull, certainly. There, there is more of the Cinderella story to this than there is the boxing match. So the boxing match is just the culmination of the story. It's not, it is not the story in and of itself. So I, I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's got a different element to it as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think the only reason that, or the reasons I think this needs to be a boxing story and not some other sport, the two of them are because it is one-on-one, right? This is not about a team sport. This is about Rocky not Rocky on a team, which again sets it apart from Mighty Ducks, right? You're not building a team with a rotating roster. This is about one guy. And the other thing is to make the ending work, it has to be a sport where there's an upper limit for how long it can go, but it could be over in 20 seconds if one person dominates too much, right? So we we need to see that he can go the distance. As for the other movies ago, I have not yet seen Raging Bull or Ali with Will Smith. And those are the two I'm still... I've I've heard so many good things about them. I am open to it. I'm just, because of my history with watching boxing movies and directors that I like doing the boxing movies, I just, I'm not going out of my way, but if I'm looking to have something on and it pops up on Netflix or something when I'm scrolling through the list, I'll probably check them out. So anything else anyone wants to cover before Blaine uh, starts taking us through the nominations and winners for the year? No, I I think I'm good. All right. Well, in that case, the 49th Annual Awards were held on March 28th, 1977 in the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, hosted by Richard Pryor, Ellen Bernstein, Jane Fonda, and Warren Beatty, and directed by Marty Pacetta. And in the categories, Best Picture went to Rocky, clearly beating out all the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Taxi Driver. Best Director went to John Adelson for Rocky, beating out Alan J. Pakula for All the President's Men, Ingmar Bergman for Face to Face, Sidney Lumet for Network, and Lena Wurtmuller for Seven Beauties. And I'm trying to recall if we've had a female Best Director nominee. Oh, no, we haven't. This She was the first woman nominated for Best Director. Best Actor went to Peter Finch for Network, beating out Robert De Niro for Taxi Driver, Giancarlo Giannini for Seven Beauties, William Holden for Network, and Sylvester Stallone for Rocky. When you talk about the acting range... A lot of people these days were shocked to hear that he was nominated for an Oscar, but for this role, he was. Best Actress went to Faye Dunaway for Network, beating out Mary Christine Barreau for Cousin Cuisine, Talia Shire for Rocky, Sissy Spacek for Carrie, and Liv Ullman for Face to Face. Best Supporting Actor went to Jason Robards for All the President's Men, beating out Ned Beatty for Network, Burgess Meredith for Rocky, Laurence Olivier for Marathon Man, and Burt Young for Rocky. Best Supporting Actress went to Beatrice Strait for Network, beating out Jane Alexander for All the President's Men, Jodie Foster for Taxi Driver, Lee Grant for Voyage of the Damned, and Piper Laurie for Carrie. Best Screenplay written directly for the screen, based on factual material or on story material not previously published or produced. This is a long way to now say Best Original Screenplay. That went to Network by Patty Chayefsky, beating out Cousin Cousine, The Front, Rocky, and Seven Beauties. So that was another Stallone nomination here. Best screenplay based on material from another medium went to All the President's Men, beating out Bound for Glory, Fellini's Casanova, The 7% Solution, and Voyage of the Damned. 
Best Foreign Language Film went to Black and White in Color, beating out Cousin Cuisine, Jacob the Liar, Nights and Days, and Seven Beauties. Best Documentary Feature went to Harlan County, USA, Hollywood on Trial, Off the Edge, People of the Wind, and Volcano, an inquiry into the life and death of Malcolm Lowry. Best Documentary Short Subject went to Number Our Days, beating out American Shoeshine, Blackwood, The End of the Road, and Universe. Best Live Action Short Film went to In the Region of Ice, beating out Kudzo, The Morning Spider, Nightlife, and Number One. Best Animated Short Film went to Leisure, beating out Dadalo and the Street. Best Original Score went to Jerry Goldsmith for The Omen, beating out Obsession, which is a posthumous nomination for Bernard Herrmann, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Taxi Driver, which is another posthumous nomination for Bernard Herrmann, and Voyage of the Damned by Lalo Schifrin, who I didn't realize did a lot of movie scores. He, I know Lalo Schifrin mostly for coming up with the Mission Impossible theme. Best Original Song Score and its Adaptation or Adaptation Score went to Bound for Glory, beating out Bugsy Malone and A Star is Born. Best Original Song went to Evergreen, the love theme from A Star is Born, beating out Ava Zatani for The Omen, Come to Me from The Pink Panther Strikes Again, Gonna Fly Now from Rocky, and A World That Never Was from Half a Mouse. Best Sound went to All the President's Men, beating out King Kong, Rocky, Silver Streak, and A Star is Born. Best Costume Design went to Fellini's Casanova, specifically to Danilo Donati, beating out Bound for Glory, The Incredible Sarah, The Passover Plot, and The 7% Solution. Best Art Direction went to All the President's Men, beating out The Incredible Sarah, The Last Tycoon, Logan's Run, and The Shootist. Best Cinematography went to Bound for Glory, beating out King Kong, Logan's Run Network, and A Star is Born. And Best Film Editing went to Rocky, beating out All the President's Men, Bound for Glory, and Network, and Two Minute Warning. For Special Achievement Awards, Carlo Rambaldi, Glenn Robinson, and Frank Vanderveer got one for the visual effects in King Kong. And L.B. Abbott, Glenn Robinson, so he got two of them. And uh, Matthew Urikic for the visual effects of Logan's Run. So there was a time when visual effects was a regular category. That time has passed, although it will come back again. And the Irving Jean Thalberg Memorial Award went to Pandro S. Berman. Now, films with multiple nominations. Network and Rocky had 10 each. There were eight nominations for All the President's Men, six for Bound for Glory, four for Seven Beauties, A Star is Born, and Taxi Driver, three for Cousin Cuisine and Voyage of the Damned, and two nominations each for Carrie, Face to Face, Fellini's Casanova, The Incredible Sarah, King Kong, Logan's Run, The Omen, and The 7% Solution. Multiple award winners, All the President's Men and Network won four each, Rocky won three, and Bound for Glory won two. So that's the general uh, comment. One comment I will make before I really open it up, I think had Best Makeup been an Academy Award at this time, Michael Westmore probably would have at least had a nomination for the work he did in Rocky, because in that final fight, those men are beaten and bruised and swelling, and it looks very convincing. So, do you guys have any other comments to add? I won't have a lot more to add, since Rocky is the only Best Picture nominee I've seen so far from this year. I'm not familiar with Bound for Glory, but outside of that, an, another Murderer's Row year with all the President's Men Network and Taxi Driver. Yeah, I've only seen the one, but... When you get to how they, they shape up on the IMDb, three of these five are on the IMDb top 250 list. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm in a similar situation to Trey, that I've seen All the President's Men Network, Taxi Driver, and Rocky, but I've never seen Bound for Glory. I think if the Academy had the sensibilities, it developed about five years after this, 
I don't think Rocky would have won Best Picture. I, I think probably Network would have. But I could see Network, All the President's Men, and Taxi Driver being over Rocky based upon the sensibilities that the Academy seems to have developed. But looking back on this, you know, 47 years later, Rocky is the most rewatchable movie by far. That, that goes without saying. I think they all have excellent performances. The, the bottom line is, you know, when I talk about the sensibilities, is I think Rocky has the least gravitas of all of these movies. But if I had to pick my favorite, Rocky is the highest. And in my opinion, Rocky and Taxi Driver both would rank as Jaws on my own personal scale. But I would still put Rocky above it as far as, again, rewatchability and just general enjoyment. It's hard. It would be hard to argue with any of them winning Best Picture over the others, frankly. I think they're all really good movies. I think I'm in a similar boat, Paul. I think all the President's Men and Network are rewatchable, but I can tell you I haven't seen either of them in the past 10 years, but Taxi Driver and Rocky, I've both, I, I both watch at least, you know, every three or four years, if not more frequent than that, but maybe it's because Taxi Driver is more nihilistic. Rocky's the one you feel good about watching multiple times. Mm-hmm. L- looking, I, I don't know if I would have given Avelson Best Director personally, I think he does a good job of directing this movie. I think it's a very good movie. But I don't know that it's better directed. I think I probably would have given it to Lamette for Network, personally. And the biggest flaw in Rocky, the one that every time I watch it just jumps out at me, is during the fight. And you look and you could see in the background that the stands are empty. That really disturbs me every single time I watch it. And I can't just put it on the director, but I'm going to. So that really bothers me. Best actor, I kind of felt like De Niro should have beat out Finch. And I think Finch posthumously got some consideration because he passed away. Yeah. Best actress, I'm good with Faye Dunaway in Network. Best supporting actor, I like Jason Robots, but Jason Robots very rarely stands out to me as being like the guy who, you know, has that performance that really demands an award. Maybe it's just sentimentality, but I would have given it to Burgess Meredith. And I think that's my comments on the awards and that went out. I don't think I have anything else of, of note. Yeah, I'm closely aligned with you on Best Supporting Actor, just because the role also ended up being so iconic. Laurence Olivier over Jason Robards I could have easily seen for Marathon Man. I, I agree with you about Best Director. I think Rocky succeeds more on the screenplay and the acting than the directing. At the same time, I can't say that Sylvester Stallone should have beat Patty Chayefsky for Network for Best Screenplay, so I don't have any uh, objections there, but I think that if I wanted to see it win for one or the other, I would have wanted to see it win for screenplay over directing. My question, Paul, and I, I know that you're the self-admitted, not expert on music scores, but do you think maybe instead of Bernard Herman for Obsession, Bill Conti's score should have been on that list? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bill Conti has one of the greatest scores in my mind that I've ever heard. There's the part in this, I just find it to be so... It, it, it's, you know, I, I talk, I've talked in the last one we covered about Goosebumps. The scene when Rocky 
in the in the fight is knocked down and they're telling him to stay down and the move the music just kind of like slows and then swells up and you feel that emotion it is it is so visceral as far as i'm concerned that it is one of the best score moments i've ever heard and it kept, it stands out to me every single time i watch it and and that score has been kind of rehashed over the years and it's it's used you know in the other movies never to as great effect as it is in that moment and if if you find yourself watching this movie again watch for that moment and listen to the score i just think it's unreal how good it is i wonder if it didn't make the score category because a lot of the score has similar themes and and melody to gonna fly now which was in for best original song so if they felt that it might almost be redundant and actually Come to think of it, looking at the best original song, yeah, Gonna Fly Now, I would say maybe that one should have taken the top award, because 40-whatever years later, that's the one I know. The rest have not stayed in the cultural consciousness, but Gonna Fly Now has. But As far as scores go, The Omen also has a very, very memorable score. So I can't criticize it winning, but no. for, for Rocky to not even be nominated is... is a great injustice. And I've never seen Obsession, so maybe I'm doing that particular score a disservice, and I think no one would argue that Bernard Herman's one of the all-time great film composers, but it just seemed like going overboard to have him posthumously nominated for two films and to ignore Bill Conti. Yeah, well, he did. Yeah, he he died on Christmas Eve, nineteen seventy five. So yeah, he would have passed away before the nominations were finalized, but they would have been deep into the voting at that point. Is that the people have to submit their votes by the end of the year, and they have I think like six weeks to do it. So yeah, that's the way it worked for those. But Herman, his his career, he did so much with Hitchcock too. Mm -hmm. Right, we we're talking about the guy who scored. Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Birds, Marnie, The Trouble with Harry, The Man Who Knew Too Much. I have no issues with him being nominated, but yeah, maybe it could have been, if it was done by committee, I could see them nominating him once. But the way it works is every film that is submitted for consideration goes out on one ballot. So people, they can nominate or vote for like five out of 50 or 60, however many are submitted. And then whichever get the most votes are the ones that end up on the nomination list. So it it is still impressive when you get the multiple nominees in these categories, which does seem to happen in original score more than the rest between Herman, Jerry Goldsmith, and John Williams. We're going to be seeing a lot of that in the coming years. And yeah, I do think best original song should have gone to Gonna Fly Now. Yeah, Evergreen was a very popular song at the time. A lot of people picked it as their wedding song. So I I can understand why it you know why it had a certain appeal, but Gonna Fly Now was huge <laughs> at that time. Uh, I remember my, my high school band would play that song like every time. They, the, the, you know, the high school orchestra would play it every time that there was any kind of a show. That was like their big, you know, their, their big piece to play for everybody to show how good they can do. So I, I, I would certainly vote for Gonna, Gonna Fly Now, no question. But then I'm also not a Barbra Streisand fan. Well, I was born in 75. So arguably... It was probably because more because of Rocky Two, maybe Rocky Three, but I remember hearing "Gonna Fly Now" get radio play, mm -hmm. and for me to remember it 
it still had to be getting radio play around 78. The the first time I saw this movie, like I said, it was a TBS marathon. It was probably the 1990s. And when that music kicked in, my reaction was, oh, this is where that's from. Because I'd already heard it so many times. It was just that theme, especially every parody of the, the training montage. And that's something else I meant to mention and haven't yet. I cannot think of a film that had a training montage prior to this one, but boy, were there a whole lot of them after. Yeah, this 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 film did kind of make the montage a very viable part of many, many movies afterwards. And I guess we should give uh, John Avelson some credit for that. But just the same, again, I, I, I feel like... I, I agree with the way Trey said it, that this is largely uh, screenplay-driven. On the other hand, just to kind of play devil's advocate, we I, I find myself often criticizing directors for bad performances by the actors. If I get a wooden performance by an actor, I'm criticizing the director for just saying, okay, that's good enough, let's move on to the next thing. So when you get so many above-average performances as you did in this movie, you should be giving Avelson some credit for that. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, especially... It's a little different in North America versus Britain. Like With the British system, the director's only job is to work with the actors. And it's the director of cinematography who's choosing the camera angles and things. Here, they have more expectations. But yeah, working with the actors is a big one. And clearly, Avelson did that well, looking at his... I've always criticized George Lucas's directing for being more worried about how they're going to do the CGI and how they're going to put in the special effects and just making sure his actors hit their marks and don't flub their dialogue, but not necessarily worrying about the quality of the performance and kind of leaving it up to the actors to self-police themselves. You know, so I think that's why we see such a wide range in, in, certainly in the Star Wars prequel movies, such a wide range of acting level from the actors uh, because they were kind of on their own to to step up their game if they could. Yeah, he was he was not a good director to be working with Jake Lloyd or any other child actor for episode one. George Lucas, what, he's really good at the outline level of storytelling, and he is a very good editor, but he makes his best product when he, he hands out the final screenplay to someone else and the directing to someone else. But anyway, we'll... We'll talk more about that next month, I guess. <laughs> so do we have any other comments about this before we go on to the Golden Globes? No, I'm good. All right. So the Golden Globes, the 34th annual Golden Globes, for the best motion picture drama, that went to Rocky, beating out all the President's Men, Bound for Glory, Network, and Voyage of the Damned. Taxi Driver didn't make the list. For comedy or musical, that went to A Star is Born, beating out Bugsy Malone, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, The Ritz, and Silent Movie. For best performance drama... Actor went to Peter Finch for Network, beating out David Carradine for Bound for Glory, Robert Nero for Taxi Driver, Dustin Hoffman for Marathon Man, and Sylvester Stallone for Rocky. Actress went to Faye Dunaway for Network, beating out Glenda Jackson for The Incredible Sarah, Sarah Miles for The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, Talia Shire for Rocky, and Liv Ullman for Face to Face. Best Performance in a Comedy or Musical, Actor went to Chris Christopherson for A Star is Born, beating out Mel Brooks for Silent Movie, Peter Sellers for Pink Panther Strikes Again, Jack Weston for The Ritz and Gene Wilder for Silver Streak. Actress went to Barbara Streisand for A Star is Born, beating out Jodie Foster for Freaky Friday. Barbara Harris for two movies. She was nominated for both Family Plot and Freaky Friday. Goldie Hawn for The Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox. And Rita Moreno for The Ritz. Best Supporting in Drama, Comedy, or Musical. 
For the actor, it went to Laurence Olivier in Marathon Man, beating up Marty Feldman in Silent Movie, Ron Howard in The Shootist, Jason Robards in All the President's Men, and Oscar Werner in Voyage of the Damned. Supporting actress went to Catherine Ross for Voyage of the Damned, beating out Lee Grant for Voyage of the Damned, Martha Keller for Marathon Man, Piper Laurie for Carrie, Bernadette Peters for Silent Movie, and Shelley Winters for Next Stop Greenwich Village. Best Director, Sidney Lumet took it home for Network, beating out Hal Ashby for Bound for Glory, John Avildsen for Rocky, Alan Pakula for All the President's Men, and John Schlesinger for Marathon Man. Screenplay went to Network, Patty Chayefsky, beating out All the President's Men, Marathon Man, Rocky, Taxi Driver, and Voyage of the Damned. Best Score went to A Star is Born, beating out Bugsy Malone, Rocky, Slipper in the Rose, and Voyage of the Damned. So here he did get the nomination for Rocky. Best Original Song went to Evergreen, beating out Bugsy Malone, Car Wash, I'd Like to Be You for a Day from Freaky Friday, Hello and Goodbye from From Noon Till Three, and So Sad the Song from Pipe Dreams, Gonna Fly Now was not nominated here. So again, Conti was nominated one or the other. Uh, foreign Film, Face to Face from One, out of Sweden, beating out Cousin Cousine, Small Change, Seven Beauties, and The Slipper in the Rose. Documentary film went to Altars of the World, beating out The Memory of Justice, People of the Wind, That's Entertainment Part 2, and Wings of an Eagle. New Star of the Year actor went to Arnold Schwarzenegger as Joe Santo in Stay Hungry, beating out Lenny Baker for Natch Stop Greenwich Village, Truman Capote for Murder by Death, uh, Jonathan Kahn for The Sailor Who Fell from Grace with the Sea, and Harvey Spencer Stevens for The Omen. New Star of the Year actress went to Jessica Lange for King Kong, beating out Melinda Dillon for Bound for Glory, Muriel Hemingway for Lipstick, Gladys Knight for Pipe Dreams, and Andrea Markovici for The Front. Uh, for television, Best Series Drama went to Rich Man, Poor Man, beating out Captain and the Kings, Charlie's Angels, Family, and Little House on the Prairie. Best Series Comedy or Musical, Barney Miller won, beating out Carol Burnett Show, Donnie and Marie, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley and MASH. Um, I've never mentioned this before, I don't think. My grandfather was a police officer, and Barney Miller was the only police show he could stand, because it's the only one that felt real to him. My, my dad liked Barney Miller and Adam 12. My dad was a cop. Okay. So, best television film went to Eleanor and Franklin, beating out Amelia Earhart, Francis Gary Powers, The True Story of the U-2 Spy Incident, I Want to Keep My Baby, The Lindbergh Kidnapping Case, and Sybil. And I think that's a new category for them this year. Best actor in a drama went to Richard Jordan for Captains and the Kings beating out Lee Majors for The Six Million Dollar Man, Nick Nolte for Rich Man, Poor Man, Telly Savalas for Kojak, and Peter Strauss for Rich Man, Poor Man. Best Actress in a Drama went to Susan Blakely for Rich Man, Poor Man, beating out Angie Dickinson for Policewoman, Farrah Fawcett for Charlie's Angels, Kate Jackson for Charlie's Angels, Jean Marsh for Upstairs Downstairs, Seda Thompson for Family, and Lindsay Wagner for The Bionic Woman. Best Actor in Comedy and Musical went to Henry Winkler for Happy Days. So beating out Alan Alda for MASH. That's the first time Alan Alda has lost since MASH premiered. He also beat out Michael Constantine for Sirotis Court, Sammy Davis Jr. for Sammy and Company, Hal Linden for Barry Miller, Freddie Prince for Chico and the Man, that's Freddie Prince Sr., and Tony Randall for The Tony Randall Show. Best Actress, Comedy or Musical Series, went to Carol Burnett for her show, beating out Bernie Dent Peters for All's Fair, Mary Tyler Moore for her show, Isabel Sanford for The Jeffersons, and Dinah Shore for Dinah. Best Supporting Actor went to Ed Asner for Rich Man, Poor Man, beating up Tim Conway from The Carol Burnett Show, Charles Durning for Captains of the Kings, Gavin McLeod for The Mary Tyler Moore Show, and Rob Reiner for All in the Family. Best Supporting Actress went to Josette Banzett for Rich Man, Poor Man, beating out Adrian Barbeau for Maud, Ellen Corby for The Waltons, Darlene Carr for Once an Eagle, Julie Kavner for Rhoda, Vicki Lawrence for The Carol Burnett Show, Anne Mara for Rhoda, 
and Sally Struthers for All in the Family. All right. Any other comments you guys have for this? No, not really. Not for the Golden Globes. Yeah, no, I'm okay. <laughs> All right. So shall we look at how our five best feature, our best picture nominees stack up on the IMDb and Letterboxd these days? Yes. Sure. All right. So on the IMDb, looking at our top five nominees, same on Letterboxd, there's definitely four and then the fifth. So going through it, of the nominees, Taxi Driver is number eight. It's the highest rated nominee and I think the highest rated English language film of the year. Coming in at number 10 is Rocky. Number 11 is Network. And number 17 is All the President's Men with Bound for Glory all the way down at number 55. And I should note, the IMDb Top 250, the lowest rated film in the Top 250, has an 8.0 out of 10. All the President's Men is a 7.9. So it almost makes the Top 250. But Taxi Driver, Rocky, and Network all do. So Taxi Driver is the number 114 of all time. Rocky is 211. And Network is 219. So, yes, time has been very kind to these nominees in this year. Well, it speaks for the quality, I guess. Uh, looking at Letterboxd, so again, the highest rated of them, highest rated English language film is Taxi Driver. That's number six for the year. Network is number seven. All the President's Men is 13. Rocky is 23. And Bound for Glory does not appear in the top 72 films of the year. But they are, all four of those are considered better than the best Doctor Who of the year. That's the Deadly Assassin. That comes in at 25. So at least the way history is stacking up, it looks like people are saying it probably should have been Taxi Driver. But it's not huge margins in the ratings on these. So it's not that Rocky is a poor movie. I mean, it's, it's on that top 250. It's just a really competitive year. I agree with that. Yeah, I'm I'm also scanning through real quick. Blaine, Rocky's also in AFI's 100 years, 100 films list. So is Taxi Driver. So is Network. I'm not seeing all the president's uh, men, but three of them are in AFI's, you know, 100 years, 100 films list. So yeah, I'm not going to say personally what I would have chosen because... Of these five, as I said, Rocky's the one I've seen, although I've been, I think all the President's Men I've been meaning to get to and just haven't found easy access. But yeah, and Taxi Driver is, again, very well respected, but it also strikes me as one where you, you have to be in the mood. Taxi Driver can be disturbing if you watch it when you're not in the right mood. Yeah. And just for what it's worth, uh, All the President's Men is currently available on HBO Max, if you have that. HBO Max as it is, does not appear in Canada, but about half their catalog is on Crave, which I do subscribe to because that's where the new Star Trek series are. And until the 60th anniversary hits, that's where Doctor Who is. So I can check that catalog for all the President's Men. So in, if this was just a 99 Years 100 Films episode, from here we would be moving on to the fact that this is another multiple of 10. But before we do that and look at the last decade as a whole, this is crossing over with Is It Jaws, even though Rocky has already been covered on Is It Jaws once. But so I think Trey and I should give our Jaws ratings. Absolutely. And and just, just to throw in there, just by the way, it's my show, so I get to make the rules and I say we could cover it twice. Okay. So you want to also remind listeners what the Jaws scale is? So the Jaws scale is rating 
movies on a scale of one through four, with uh, not necessarily correlating to the quality of the actual Jaws movies, but with a Jaws rating, you're saying it's a nearly perfect movie, an all-time classic. Jaws 2, a very solid movie worthy of multiple rewatching, but not quite up to that classic level. Jaws 3, a movie that you watch, it's okay, and you move on with your life. And Jaws 4, a bad movie, and as Trey has reminded me, there is the Jaws, I don't even remember what number it is, 15, 23, whatever it was. It was from uh, Back to the Future 2, whatever, whatever movie they gave it then, which that one I've designated as a movie that's so bad that you enjoy watching it. So uh, that's Jaws 19. Okay. Okay. I'll, I'll go first. It, don't think I'm surprising anybody with everything I've said so far in the podcast. Rocky ranks as Jaws for me. Yeah, for me, before this rewatch, because I saw it for the first time in the 90s, and I think this is now the third time I've seen it, but it's been at least a decade, so it's the first time I thought about it on the Jaws scale. Coming in, I was asking myself, is this going to be a strong Jaws 2 or a weak Jaws? And I'm also coming down that this is Jaws. Well, sir, we're all in agreement there. All right, so uh, that is the 50th film. So we are halfway through our mandate. And as longtime listeners of 99 Years 100 Films will know, at every 10th film, we sit down and pick our top and bottom films of the last 10. And then when we're done, all 100 films, we're going to pick our best of those 10. So just to remind people, the ones that are eligible for this one are In the Heat of the Night, Oliver, Midnight Cowboy, Patton, The French Connection, The Godfather, The Sting, The Godfather Part Two. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and Rocky. And Paul, I know you haven't been in there for the, the past little while, but you are welcome to give your picks for these ten. Sure. Uh, you guys want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Um, yeah, anyone who's ready. Um, I'll go first. Best of the decade, or of the ten prior ten films, I'm going to give to Godfather. And worst for me is probably Midnight Cowboy. Again, we're talking worst out of the best 10 best pictures, so that does not mean it's a bad movie. It just means least favorite to me out of the 10. Paul? I vacillate sometimes whether I prefer The Godfather or The Godfather Part 2, because I feel like The Godfather Part 2 is a... I, I, I enjoy the time jumps in it and everything, and I enjoy the contrast that it creates. But bottom line is I have to come down as on The Godfather as being the best one, although it, it, it really is splitting hairs as far as I'm concerned between the two of them. As far as the worst, I'm going to agree with Trey. I'm going to put Midnight Cowboy. I'm not going to say it's a bad movie in any way, shape, or form, but I do think Midnight Cowboy garnered some support based on the fact that it was considered to be like edgy uh, for, for the era, and I... I don't see it as really anywhere near as enjoyable or rewatchable as any of the other 10. So I'm going to put that as the bottom. Okay. For mine, I actually keep track of my letterboxed ratings as I go through these. These 10 films have the highest average score of any group of 10 so far. So even though it did end up as an easy pick for me, again, they're not bad movies. The lowest we've rated or I've rated any movie we've done so far, these 50, is 3 out of 5. And there's a couple movies that got that. For the best, I'm going to go with In the Heat of the Night. That one really blew me away for how meticulously it was made and how strong it was. And for the weakest, I've got to go with Oliver. Again, not a bad movie. On the Jaws scale, it's Jaws 3, which is still in the good territory. 
you know, it's one I I'm happy I saw it. I enjoyed watching it. I just don't plan to go back to watch it again. I don't think I rate any of these below Joe's too, frankly. Oliver has an element of nostalgia for me, but you know, everybody's mileage can vary. Yeah, and Oliver watching it for the podcast was my first viewing. And I mean I might be a little bit biased against it, considering that was a year when I think the Academy royally messed up the nominees. Because this was the year that two thousand one Rosemary's Baby, Planet of the Apes, and How the West Was Won all came out, and not one of the four was nominated. That's, that is a very fair critique. We talk about qu- quotability. I, I often use the, please, sir, can I have some more? And, and in response to, can I have some more, I often say, more? <laughs> and go on with that. So it definitely has that for me. You know how Michael Bailey talks about being able to just instantly remember certain musical numbers? I, I, don't, I don't consider myself a big musical guy, and I'm not going to say by any stretch of the imagination that Oliver's a better musical than, for example, Singing in the Rain. But I, I, I guess I'm with you, Paul, because of, because of my age and some of the things that I've grown up with. I instantly found myself remembering every word to pick a pocket or two or consider yourself <laughs> at home, you know, so it it's just one of those for me. Food, glorious food. Yeah. Now, see, now we talk about rewatchability, just that little conversation is making me want to watch it again, which in and of itself keeps it from being my bottom. Yeah, I can see that again. It's not bad. I mean, the worst we've seen so far is Cavalcade. The Most of the film buff groups I say that I'm part of say that the worst is yet to come. But that's the worst we've seen so far. That'll be interesting. That'll be interesting when you get to it. Did we rate that worse than Broadway Melody? Um, yeah, Broadway Melody, I think we gave a little more latitude because it was so new to the okay. genre. Okay. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it, as I rank these, oh, I actually did give Gone with the Wind a 2.5 because of the, the racist elements more than the production. But Cavalcade, Cimarron, and Broadway Melody are all three out of fives for me on Letterboxd. And then as were Hamlet, An American in Paris, The Greatest Show on Earth, Around the World in 80 Days, West Side Story, and Oliver. So there's a few that hit the three, but for the fives, it's In the Heat of the Night, Marty, Gentleman's Agreement, Casablanca, and You Can't Take It With You. And tipping my hand a little bit for the 100th film, really the uh, the two contenders right now for the best of the 10 best are in the heat of the night in Casablanca. I, I was going to say, if you were to ask right now what was the best of the 50, ah, God, picking between Casablanca and Godfather is really, really hard. All right, so shall we uh, let everyone know what, at least what's next on 99 Years 100 Films? We don't know what's next on Is It Jaws yet. <clears throat> next week, we take a look at Love and Dating in 70s Manhattan with Woody Allen and Diane Keaton in Annie Hall. Yeah, and that... Annie Hall beat out The Goodbye Girl, Julia, Star Wars, and The Turning Point. So one of those films is still part of the conversation, too. <laughs> I will be interested in listening to that one. All right. So shall since, again, this is going to be cross-posted, shall we let everyone know where to find all the, the podcasts? And... Well, if you're listening to this on 99 Films, you can find me on the Two True Freaks Network on Is It Yours or on Back to the Bins. And then we have various shows that go on that are finite in their time. Currently, we are doing The Village People, a look at the series The Prisoner. Yeah, and that's current at the time of recording. But at 34 weeks, 
to to run that because it's what bi-weekly with 17 episodes mm-hmm. left because you just did the colony preview that could very well be wrapping up or already done by the time people well it'll still be available if people want to download it after the fact yep and that's with the same group of podcasters that also did toon trek for the star trek animated series listen to the prophets for deep space nine and keep them flying blanking on the name of your firefly oh keep them flying yeah it was the firefly podcast yes and who knows what we're doing next i don't yeah that's the the downside of having as much lead time as we have here because we've talked about it a little bit but all the podcasts i'm involved in are generally recorded about a year in advance because I'm a teacher, so sometimes I have to do a whole lot of editing in July and August because there's not necessarily time during the school year. All right, so uh, for those listening on the Is It Jaws feed, uh, yeah, 99 Years, 100 Films is the podcast Trey and I do together. And then I've got a couple other projects, including an old-time radio series, which should just be wrapping up Duffy's Tavern and moving into Pat Novak for hire when this comes out. And I occasionally guest host on other podcast i'm on air gonna put paul on the spot scott promised me a spot on back to the bins a while ago so i I gotta get on that show at some point paul but uh you are more than welcome to join me just let me know when and i'll i'll make it happen awesome okay so by the by the time people listen to this they probably will already have heard trey on back to the bins okay so if you Remind me what episode number that is. I'll try and drop it in the notes when I edit and upload it. Okay, when the time comes that we record it and post it, I will let you know. (laughs) All right. And meanwhile, to everyone out there, thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for having me on, guys. Oh, our pleasure. Thanks for coming.